Welcome to Doctrine and Devotion, a podcast that explores Christian faith and practice from a Reformed Baptist perspective. My name is Joe Thorne. I'm the lead pastor of Redeemer Fellowship in St. Charles, Illinois, and we've got Jordan back on the podcast. Jordan Stefaniak, the maniac. He's uh, he's joining us on his Windows 95 operating system. <laughs> Wearing a stupid is cardinal. Is it really a podcast <laughs> if you have video? No, you know, they used to remember they used to call them vlogs back in the day and then vo- they tried to go vodka. I, I don't know. I don't know. We're doing we are doing some video. So if you're listening to this and you want to see what uh, what a good looking guy and an old ugly guy look like while they're talking about theology, then you can go to YouTube. That's always fun. Some of them like that. I don't know what it is. But by the way, why are you wearing a Cardinals hat? And why are you in like a high school classroom? What is going on over there? I don't even well, understand. I'm from St. Louis. Okay. So I'm diehard Cardinals fan. Okay. Okay. Got that. And I'm in the office at work. So yeah, we've got this oh. like weird teal color. It doesn't <laughs> seem to come through, but it's it's terrible. Okay. Well, listen, I was born in St. Louis. All right. I was born I was born in St. Louis proper. And uh, my family got the heck out of that dump as soon as we could. I was uh, about six <laughs> months old. So that place is a hole. And now you're in a greater dump in Chicago. <laughs> listen, listen, Chicago is a much better dump. I'm going to tell you right now. Like, listen, like we have uh, it's a much colder dump. It's a much bigger dump. It's bigger, yeah, and you know, bigger's better. I hear that a lot. You know, bi- well, big, you know, bigger, concrete be- jungle, bigger. It's great. It's good. No, uh, I do, I do love St. Louis. I love visiting St. Louis. In fact, I'm coming down. I think in November for a Plant Midwest conference. I'll be down there uh, preaching. I think it's November. I got to look at my calendar. I don't remember stuff, but. Uh, yeah, man. Looking forward to it. So Jordan Stefaniak, uh, president of the London Lyceum, sort of a sort of a I mean, I don't know how other people put it, but uh, for me, it's uh, it's sort of a, a think tank for Reformed Baptist uh, theology, man. That's that's how I, I view it. It's uh, I love the content you guys put out. Uh, I find uh, and I don't read a ton. Right. But when I get in, I get the chance. I start to read and I listen. And uh, but I'm, I'm frequently challenged, which I like. You know, I like people to like throw me a little bit like, wait, what? I'll start to read some of the articles and I'm like, oh, no, no, no. I don't like, oh, I, okay, I get it. I know what's going on. And I, I like that sort of a thing. So by the way, sort of like reading um, Aquinas when, uh, <laughs> by the way, because it was funny. Like I, I remember, I actually got the old book out, the first book on Aquinas that I had to read in college. And um, in fact, it's behind me. It's that orange book you see on the shelf. So I pulled it out and I started looking. I'm like, oh, I remember this because he starts to argue when he argues God does not have a body. He starts by arguing, well, God, God has a body, you know, and it's almost like he's like, he's like here's the way people think, and he, and you kind of go through it. And then he's like, but that doesn't work. And this is why, because here's the scripture. A lot of your articles are that way too. I feel like it, uh, it sort of sets things up to get people thinking a little bit differently, put them on tilt and then bring them into uh, a strong theological perspective. I love the London Lyceum and, uh, and you guys are doing, uh, you guys are doing YouTube now, right? We are doing YouTube. You guys doing YouTube stuff. Look at this. London, look how clean it looks. And you've got three videos up now from uh, last just, uh, what was the last one? It was just like a few days ago, wasn't it? It was a few days ago. And we already have someone who did a YouTube review of it. Oh, wow. Was it positive? Um, So I've watched the first 10 minutes of it. And I think it's positive toward the posture and everything, but it's a Muslim dude. Oh, wow. So he's going to be critiquing this was basically a sort of a debate between two guys so one's going to be more traditional orthodox he's a roman catholic and then there's this guy right here ryan who's like got some crazy fringe theological views to some degree he's a protestant but i think he's going to critique both of them oh wow okay all right very very cool well man i um 
uh, people like the YouTube content. They like they like the video stuff. We're trying to do that as well. It's uh, it's not it's not the easiest thing uh, for us, and we're still using. Uh, well, I I like being in in the room with people, and for for the first what six years basically, uh, we really have avoided uh, call-ins because it didn't sound right, and we just were generally unhappy with how it came together. But uh, we finally decided like we're going to have to just stop being idealistic about this and just get people on. And the sound quality is generally good, especially if we're talking to somebody like you who has a good setup. So uh, yeah, man, we're glad to have you back on the podcast. Thank you for what you do with the London Lyceum. You're also now what's your, what's your role at Southeaster? You're still there as a, like a research fellow or something. Yeah, that's right. So I'm a research fellow with the center for faith and culture uh, at Southeastern. So it's, I don't know what the technical term for it is. It's sort of like a think tank to some degree, just okay. thinking about how do we think about culture as Christians. So that's pretty broad. So you're thinking politics to everything from just how to be a good dad and mom. Now, why would anybody want to go there when they could just listen to Doug Wilson? Because like he's he's culture. He, he, like you know, like why why would why would they care about your thing? Because in the cheekiest way, I can say it's more biblical. <laughs> By the way, uh, he that he he would appreciate that approach because that's that's how Wilson I think would probably. Hey, Wilson's pretty Doug's cheeky. A direct shooter. Yep. I'll direct shoot you right back. Yeah, yeah, good deal. Good deal. So you got anything going on this summer? It's uh, August. We're getting towards the end. Dude, so I've been incredibly busy. So I've got the London Lyceum. I've got the Center for Faith and Culture thing I do. I also do sort of teaching with Bible Mesh. Yeah. So if you're not familiar with Bible Mesh, right now they do a lot of stuff with missionaries. But I also am the main proctor teacher for the Union Theological College program that runs through them, which is actually a really cool master's program that they have. It's really solid content and it's from a very reformed perspective. Oh, wow. uh, it's from Union Theological College is, I guess, the college of the Presbyterian Church in Ireland. Okay. So it, that's pretty neat. That's been a lot of fun. Kept me busy. I mean, I got two kids. We're moving to a new house like 20 minutes away, which has been a lot of work too. So I feel like I'm, and I work full time. Yeah. As you can see. So it's been pretty busy, but it's a lot of fun. Cool, man. Cool. Well, I'm on sabbatical still. I've got uh, a couple more weeks before I got to get back to it. And that's, um, I've, I've been enjoying myself. We went to Florida and on the way, I finally got to stop at Bucky's. <laughs> See, like y'all are, y'all don't know like how hard up we are up here in the North. Like we don't have that. We don't have anything like that. So uh, we stopped out at Bucky's. If you don't know what Bucky's is, it's basically like, uh, it's the new Jerusalem of gas stations is what Bucky's is. And uh, they've got food, drink, T-shirts. I got a T-shirt. I got a Bucky's T-shirt. My son got one of my sons got one. I got this this cup. So I'm, uh, I'm really excited. It's probably the highlight of our, of our trip to Florida was stopping at Bucky's a few times. Well, I got to be honest. I've never been to Bucky's myself. I've driven by the million different billboards and yeah. been like, what is that? But it seems to have taken over the internet, so I need to go. It's a good time, man. It's a good time. They got all kinds of food. Uh, and the people are, I'll tell you what was cool. Uh, just watching, first of all, they pay well. I was. They have like for hire and they list their rates and everything. So I like that. Hmm. But it reminded it actually this is gonna be funny. It actually reminded me, uh, or at least interesting to me, it reminded me of my time in Tokyo because in, in Tokyo, I was I would, you know, I would get up early and I'd walk the streets and they were um 
go for a walk and pray and whatnot. And they would spend time, like you could see all the shop owners out there cleaning their door frames, their windows, straightening the mats, like getting them just precise, like really taking pride in their business or their shop, whether they worked there or owned it. And man, everybody's hustling. All those workers are hustling. They're super positive. And they were literally, this lady wasn't vacuuming the mats. Uh, she was straightening them. The, these are the mats that are right in front of the drink center, right? And so she was just making sure that they were tight, clean, put together. Like, I don't know. It was just cool. It was, it was a cool experience. I know some people dog it because it's like no big deal to them, but uh, I thought it was pretty great. Well, there's not much going on in Illinois. So let's be no, honest. No, there's not. You impressed by pretty much anything no i find i talked to people down uh you know just anywhere else in illinois out of the chicagoland region and it's basically we all just consider it southern illinois it's like a different world yeah. uh even if it's not southern illinois we we call it southern illinois it could be in the middle of of the state yeah. like that's southern illinois right and they all get touchy about it but well listen i wanted to bring you back on because well people like hearing you and i like having you on but I, I wanted to, to revisit uh, this issue of Thomas Aquinas, really just to maybe put a finer point on why he matters. And I don't know anybody in, I don't, I don't personally know anybody who is an evangelical who, uh, who considers Aquinas a top dog in, in their pantheon of theologians that they love and listen to. But the people that, that love his contribution that that all Christians have benefited from uh, do point to him as a really important figure. And so I was I was wanting you to sort of clarify for people what specifically is it about Aquinas that is universally or maybe not universally, but is so well received by both Catholics and Protestants, and especially those in the Reformed tradition. What is it? What concept, doctrine, truth is it that he highlighted? that uh that we have benefited from and is is he so important because he clarified things or articulated things in a way that hadn't been done before um you know when people ask me like well why don't you why don't you why don't you like for example why don't you like doug wilson and i was like well it's not whether i like him or not don't like him i don't recommend his reading to our people even when he's right on one particular book because um, not only because I don't like the, the kind of the whole of, of what's going on at times, but also because I know there are other people that are saying the same stuff better or just as good. But it seems like Aquinas might be one of those people who like articulated things in a way that others hadn't. And so we go back to him. So what is it about Aquinas that is so important doctrinally that we all should be able to benefit from without becoming Roman so Catholics? That's a massive question. Let me begin with, I'm not an Aquinas scholar, so if you're watching or listening, I don't know everything there is to know about Aquinas. There are tons of people who have studied them or him their whole lives. Did you just now, change I his do... pronouns? You just changed his pronouns to them, they, them. Okay. <laughs> and I, I see where you're at. Okay, Southeastern. Okay. Yeah. Well, now Doug's got material. So uh, <laughs> anyway, I do view Thomas as a wonderful companion and as a friend because I've spent so much time with him and sparred with him on pretty much every aspect of my thinking, whether that's doctrine of God, whether that's the nature of human persons or anything in between political theory, all that stuff. Now, why is he important? So it's a loaded question. So there is a sense in which he's important because of how the 20th century received him. He became 
almost a pinnacle. Like he's like he's the top dog across the board, across theological history, because of how Roman Catholics received him in the 20th century. If we back up to when he lived in the 13th century, he's not like the greatest among like everybody where it's Thomas Aquinas and then everybody else is a bottom tier. He's similar to other people, Henry of Ghent, Albert, the great Gilles of Rome, Bonaventure. All these people are kind of like on the same level. So when you think reformed dudes that you know of, you think Calvin Turretin, um, you think Van Maastricht, you think Bob Inc. I, most people would say, you know, all these guys have their different strengths and different weaknesses, but they're all pretty close to the same. That's how Aquinas was viewed in the 13th century among his peers. Now, there was something that made him sort of like the premier guy, and it's because the Dominican order, if you're familiar with Roman Catholic stuff, you've got sort of like Dominicans and Franciscans, sort of like almost like Calvinists and Arminians. You know, there's different schools. Right. That's, it's not soteriological primarily. But the Dominicans, which was Thomas's order, made his teaching compulsory in like the 1300s somewhere, like 40 years after his death. So that does make him more important just because he's like the compulsory reading that everybody's doing. So people are reading Aquinas more than others. All that to say, it's not just, it's not like we have to have Aquinas, can't have somebody else. The reason Aquinas is important is because he's traditional in most of his stuff. He's clear, and he's written on nearly every single topic that you can think of. He's more than doctrine of God or other things. He's more important in political theory than he is in doctrine of God Hmm. because of some of the stuff that he's building out there. But from a Protestant standpoint, Aquinas is important, especially with doctrine of God, just because he's traditional in some of it, and he's got some of the most important arguments uh, conceptually laid out for why we should think of God as immutable and not let other challenges derail that, why we should think of God as simple and not let other challenges derail that. There's some people who are more powerful thinkers. I think Scotus is probably a more powerful thinker, but he's really confusing and hard to read. Mm. Aquinas is easy to read. You can understand what he's saying. Yeah. I found so, that. I found that. a long that... way of saying Aquinas that... isn't the only guy. Like, it's not as if, we have to have Aquinas. Right. But Aquinas is important because he says things that are true in easy to understand ways. And he's been extremely influential since he existed. So for the last seven, 800 years, he's been one of the most powerful intellects, which everybody's interacted with. So you've got to wrestle with him. So if the question is like, do you need Aquinas? No. But should you use Aquinas? Yes, because he's got extremely important thinking that everyone is going back to and referencing. If you want to say, well, the reform guys don't have all these problems, so why not just use them? Well, it's because the reform dudes are using Aquinas. Mm -hmm. So why wouldn't you want to go to the primary source and think, what is he saying? And understand the logic behind those things. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. No, 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 totally. So, you know, you mentioned... um, you know, simplicity, for example, can, why don't you just break that down in as simple a manner as you can? Uh, what, what is divine simplicity? So I think simply the confessional status is pretty nice on it. So second line of confession says God has no body parts or passions. It's the body and the parts part. 
uh, no pun intended, that is supposed to be what cashes out divine simplicity. So it's supposed to be basically mean God doesn't have anything that composes him. There's nothing deeper to who God is than what God is. So they want to say all that God has, God is. So God has love, justice, uh, goodness. All these things are fundamentally the same substance of who God is. There's mm-hmm. not something that you could compose God of. You couldn't take out his love, take out his goodness, and separate them and make them two distinct things as if, so for me, my goodness, my love, they can fluctuate, they can change, mm-hmm. I could stop being loving. It's not the same with God. It's supposed to be that he just is love. Yeah. You, you read that in First John, What I don't remember the reference, 4, 8, maybe something like that, where God is love. Yeah. And it's supposed to just say that is, is of identity. God really just is his love. He really just is his goodness. It's a very complicated doctrine to think about, uh, but it's been something that's been confessed by Christians through from the patristic period all the way through to today. You find also Gregory of Nazianzus, you have Basil the Great, Augustine, everybody's saying God is simple. He's not made of parts. And the, ra- the main motivation for it is they don't want God to be dependent upon something else for his existence mm. in a particular way. Does so that make it, sense? Yeah, it's that it's that um all that is in God is God. Is that the phrase that um yeah. that that a number of people uh, like like to use. So God is not a composite being. You know, we have a body and a soul. You know, whether you're dichotomy or trichotomy in your view of man, are you dichotomist or trichotomist? Uh, dichotomous. Yeah, because you're not dispensational. Anyway, um, that, which is good. I, I think that's great. Um, so but I'm not a substance dualist. Ooh, explain. Well, you, Thomas Aquinas, once again, has this great, uh, I guess, catching out of what human nature is. He would be a hylomorphist, which is a special term that's just using two Greek words put together of matter and form. And really the fundamental difference between that and substance dualism is supposed to be that you'd have a body and soul, but you aren't, they're not two distinct substances. So a substance dualist would say you can exist just as your soul. You don't need your body. I can swap bodies and I'm still myself. A hylomorphist would say swapping bodies is impossible mm. because your identity is bound up in both things together as a unit. Now, there's all sorts of questions of what do you do with the intermediate state? Don't you just become a substance dualist because you end up saying that soul somehow separates? But I think there's unique ways around that. What's but it, I, I remember, like allomorphism. I remember, it, it, it's interesting because, you know, it was funny. At, at Moody, I went to Moody Bible Institute, a dispensational school. Um, but I read more of the church fathers and of uh, – I, I read more broadly there than I did at Southern Seminary. Yeah. And um, especially when it comes to just systematic theology and, and whatnot. Um, but I remember, and I, boy, I disagreed with so many of the conclusions that my professors offered because they were all classic dispensationalists. So there's a lot to disagree with um, if from, from a Reformed Baptist perspective. But they, uh, a lot of them were really smart guys. And 
I, re I remember that they got into this very issue saying it's a real problem for theologians. What do we do with the intermediate state? Because, you know, you, you, you are, I think the way that they put it, and I've seen reform people put it this way as well. Uh, you have a body and a spirit, but you are a soul. Like you are this being, right? And so to, and that includes your body. So in the intermediate state, it, like, what are you? Like it, there, there, there are real questions there that most Christians and a lot of theologians, I think, is like, ah, you know, it's, you know, don't worry about it. There's, there's nothing to think yeah, about. Yeah. So, there. I know this is off topic, but we're going here anyway. So, I think if you take the substance dualist route and you say I'm identical to a soul, you have real issues with things like the doctrine of the bodily resurrection. Mm. If I'm identical to a soul, and I can function just normally with as a soul why do I need the resurrection right. A of a body and then B the confession states of the self same body. Mm -hmm. Why do I need the exact same body that was put in the grave? What's the purpose behind that? And I think substance dualism lacks the explanatory power that something like a hylomorphic account would provide for something mm. like that. So what are you going to do though when we figure out how to put your consciousness into a younger body so you can live forever. What are you going to do then? Totally different I think body. That's fundamentally impossible. <laughs> they're, they're, they're interested in it. They're, no, they're, they're going no for doubt it. That they're interested in it. And I do think the more research that they do, the more you see that substance dualism doesn't really make sense because of this great unity that exists between our actual physical body and the soul or whatever you want to call it. If, mm -hmm. if you're talking to somebody who's not a Christian, you, you might say like just that mental consciousness or whatever, the soul. Yeah. Well, it's, uh, I don't know. I, I guess I, I've always interacted with it on a, on a very uh, practical and theological level, right? That we are psychosomatic beings, right? We, we are, there is this interconnection and I, I continue to see that science backs this well, backs this up. Uh, which is nice and affirming uh, because I see theology and the scripture pointing to this reality as well. We are not just that we're not, we're, we're not so composite that you can, uh, you can sort of take strip that away and then exist as you were intended to. And like you said, I, the, I don't know what we would do, what the purpose of the resurrection is or what, you know, what the need of it is, especially in dispensational circles, because I, I kept hearing things like, well, the body is just a suit. You know, it's just mm -hmm. something that you put on and the real you is the spirit. That's the real you. I mean, I heard that a bunch in college and uh, from, from certain professors and uh, never church history professors. But I, I, I did it. The church history guys were always more reformed uh, in, in, in their understanding of things. And they just, yeah. just presented as, as, as historic, historical theology, but they uh, they definitely tended to lean there. But uh, but the systematic theologians um, they would frequently make that point. You know that uh, you know Charles Ryrie sort of uh, approach to things, which which never sat well with me. And you know, the, the the more I read, and again they had us read so many primary sources, I kept finding myself led away from their conclusions based on the sources. Yeah that they had us read which is always funny because i remember so i got in trouble at moody for um uh i guess for undue influence among the student body and uh because in the, in in the, in the faculty's mind or some of the administration's mind i uh, was uh I, too many people were becoming reformed all millennial whatever 
And, uh, and so they called me into the office. I'd talk to the dean about it and whatever. And uh, so I wrote a letter to the student newspaper. Like, you guys have, you're having me read Burkhoff. You're, uh, you're having me read primary sources. Like, my, the Isaiah commentary is, is uh, Mathieu or Moiter. I don't know how to pronounce his name. Yeah. Like, all these guys. And then you're mad <laughs> that I'm drawing the conclusions that they draw and not the conclusions that you draw. This, I guess, it speaks to the value of reading primary sources, right? Like, 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 like Aquinas or Augustine, because it it really helps us to see the continuity of thought between present day thinkers or the discontinuity, right, between these these uh, between maybe some of those historical figures and and the present day people that were that we read and benefit from. Yeah, and not only that, reading sources like in different eras is just helpful in general because they inhabit a different world than we do. So they challenge our assumptions. You know, we, we as Americans have the, all these assumptions about all sorts of things. We just, they're the air we breathe. But that's not the air that Thomas Aquinas breathed. Mm-hmm. That's not the air that other Augustine breathed. And so they can, we can be confronted with the reality that maybe we don't have it all figured out. And there are better ways to understand the scriptures that we simply didn't realize. Mm-hmm. So, so they just... With 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 reading, you know, guys like Aquinas, or maybe we can just you can feel free to stay stay with Aquinas in in particular. Um, it's it's helpful because of the contributions that they have made, um, and of course we're going to disagree, you know, especially with where Aquinas goes in a number of areas. But it's it's valuable to read because it helps us to understand uh, God's work through his people or to, to help us to understand the, the truths of scripture. It, it benefits us to, to see our connection, but like, why, why, who, who would you encourage to read Aquinas? Well, would you encourage, you know, Joe, five-year-old Christian in the church as an adult, he's an adult, but he's, he's been a Christian for five years. I do encourage him to read Aquinas. Um, if not, why not? Like, where does the value of Aquinas really rest in the practical outworking of a local church? That's a really good question. I don't think I would give much of anything to a five-year-old Joe, just knowing that you probably couldn't read until what, you were 12 or 13. Well, I, listen, I barely read now. So, <laughs> you know, I, I, audiobooks, that's what I do. I do everything audiobooks. No, but, but for real, in thinking about the context of a local church, I don't think I would give Aquinas to most people in the pew. Um, Not necessarily because there's some danger lurking there. Uh, I trust the spirit to guide people and I trust the elders to be able to help people understand what's, what's truth and what's false. So I'm not concerned about giving people something that might lead them down a path to the swim, the Tiber or something like that. I think that's juvenile naive, but that said Aquinas is, a little bit higher level reading. Sure. So it's not just something that you would give to the normal person, the pew, just the same way. I'm not going to give Turretin right. to most people because he's hard to read. I think he's clear and he's concise, but there's just a lot of terms and conceptual stuff that you need to have background in the, the title, uh, electric theology. Yeah. Like <laughs> the title alone is going to make people go, I, I don't know what I'm doing here. I don't know what I'm looking so at. So I'm going to start with someone like Calvin just because he's easy to read and he's warm. Yeah. Pastoral. Turretin's not warm. Uh, Aquinas is not typically warm. So I would primarily encourage pastors or mm-hmm. elders, whatever you want to call them, and those who 
aspire to that sort of role or aspire to more academic sort of formal training to serve in those ways that they need to be reading Aquinas. Yeah. I mean, I don't think there's a question. You should be reading Aquinas just the same way you should be reading Calvin and you should be reading Turretin and you should be reading Augustine. I, I find it so fascinating that people who don't like Aquinas seem to like Augustine. Yeah. It right. seems like the same critiques that could be made of him are should be made of Augustine. Yeah, I don't understand the distinction there. It doesn't make sense to me. I'm sure that there's some rationale that they had come up with because, well, Aquinas is really the pinnacle of the Roman Catholic Church or something like that. Like, well, I get, I get, I get, I get the the concern of protecting the flock, right? And and yeah. pe- pe- people do drift. We all drift, right? It's 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 not hard for us to drift morally, you know, spiritually, theologically. We can become infatuated with things, captivated by vain philosophies, false doctrine. I mean, the New Testament is replete with a number of of warnings. Like, listen, there are people that are going to lead you astray with false doctrine. So I get that. And we're very careful at Redeemer like in terms of what we recommend um and what we don't recommend. You know, even like people like, oh, that guy's orthodox, but I don't encourage people to read him because the sort of the tilt on what he does is is not as good as, as other people. And then sometimes it's because, yeah, like like you were saying, this is really good for those in leadership or those who have had enough education. You know, we have people in our church that are really, really smart that easily read Augustine who are not in leadership, right? Uh, but for the average person or for the majority of people in the church, um, I have more important things for them to read than mm-hmm. than what I'm going to read, and it it not only do I, I, I first of all I agree with you like there Augustine gets a pass, you know, whereas Augustine has messed up doctrines from a Protestant perspective, but he also has some 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 great things to say and some things that are really important that are biblical and true, and that really gets to sort of like where Protestants and Catholics do have uh, a uniformity of, of of some foundational thinking right on the Trinity or whatnot at least some unity there a lot of unity. Um, but I, I, I'm actually discouraged by how many pastors that I've known over the decades, you know, as a pastor, who don't read. They simply yeah. they 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 don't read. They haven't read, and I've known these guys. They haven't read since seminary. They legit haven't. They haven't revisited. They haven't dived deeper, which means they haven't been enabled to either strengthen, clarify, or change positions that they should. Um, and again, I like I like to read. I didn't read. <laughs> you were making a joke, but I didn't. I read one book in high school. I read The Catcher in the Rye. That was it. I like that book, mm-hmm. uh, but i i didn't re- I didn't do any homework. I didn't I didn't participate in school at all. And uh, the other book I read, by the way, I read other books, but not in class. Right? I read the Satanic Bible, uh, you know, uh, rituals. I read all this kind of stuff, Anton LaVey and others. But I, I just didn't care. And then when I was converted, I was suddenly hungry. I was. I realized like how ignorant I was, and so I started to read. And now I love to read. I've been reading, you know, for, for decades now, and I I keep learning. Like, wow, you have a whole lot more to learn. You really don't know very much, and so let's let's keep going. So I have an appetite for it. That's not doesn't make me better than anybody else. So I know that not everybody has that particular sort of hunger, but for pastors to like choose to neglect to read and to challenge themselves on these deeper principles sets. Not doesn't just set them up uh, to be uh, taken taken into some like for example they they tend to they tend towards pragmatism or they tend towards uh, incomplete thoughts that get them into danger in various theological uh, areas 
but it also sets the church up for problems because if you're not reading and you're not really exercising those muscles, then you're going to be ill-equipped to defend the flock from yeah. from the various ideas, ideologies, uh, philosophies, and, and theologies that are coming their way. So I, I I see these two problems. Like one is is like where you need to read and it's really important and what you read isn't for everybody but so many and especially in the baptist and it's probably more so in the that's my tribe uh southern baptist in particular many many seasoned pastors have no interest in, in Dude, going that's back exactly to why we started the podcast mm. the london lyceum at the beginning was we looked around the baptist landscape we looked at our own local churches people don't think people don't read they don't there's all this material that's being pumped out uh, from other segments of Christianity, but Baptists seem to be like, well, I'm content knowing nothing as long as I can go tell my neighbor about Jesus, which right. it's good to have that missional impulse. I love that about Baptists, but it's skewed. You want to have a balanced right. approach to the Christian life and not just love mission only. You should be loving theology too, because that's going to fuel and drive your mission. Yeah. So I think the pastors who aren't reading, the baseline is start reading. Yeah. And yes, I'm not going to start you with Aquinas if you don't read. But there are a lot of pastors who do read. And I can tell you, stop reading the newest, hottest book that comes off the market. Yeah. That's got the cool cover that doesn't say anything but fluff and tell you a story about their life. Stop wasting your time. Read sources that have been around for 800 years. And there's a reason they've been around for 800 yeah. years. It, it's great. And when it comes to... Go ahead. Somebody like Aquinas, again, the, the, the part of the reason he's important is because of the doctrine of God discussion. And the reason doctrine of God's important is because that fuels your preaching, that fuels mm -hmm. your worship. So why wouldn't you want to use sources like him? You don't have to just use Aquinas. I wouldn't start with Aquinas in most scenarios. In some scenarios I would, but he's an intellectual giant that should be yeah. should be used and engaged just like all other intellectual giants in the Christian tradition. I'm not going to just hide some people and put them over in the corner because I don't like one or two aspects of their theology because by the end of it, I've got no one. Yeah. Well, it's, it's interesting. I, I, I've experienced this uh, in Acts 29 as well as in the SBC that, um, you know, the, we, we at, on our podcast, we, um, we have a phrase, uh, hashtag no way Wayne, um, and it just means like what we're saying is, is like Wayne Grudem systematic theology is, is really not great, Like that's really the point. Right. And yeah. really it's not so much that we don't like Wayne Grudem or that we think his book is a total loss or anything like that. Although I think there are major theological problems with his sistheo and it's not a real sistheo because it doesn't have philosophy. It doesn't have history. It's not a, it's not a proper systematic theology, but the reason we started saying no way Wayne is because so many young pastors were saying this is the best systematic theology I've ever read, which it was probably the only systematic theology many of them had read. Um, and, it, or like they would, they would say like, oh, I read this book on the Holy Spirit. It was amazing. It's really, and I'm like, oh, what was that? And it was, um, oh, it's, it's called, a great title, The Forgotten God. Uh, what's his name? Oh, Francis Chan. Francis Chan. And I was like, so I read the book. It, you know, I just sat down and read it. It was an easy read. And I, I remember telling these guys like, guys, um, you have volume three in Owen's works. Uh, it's going to be great for you to read. Um, you so read Owen on the spirit, read Smeaton. Like there's so many, there's so many great, rich, um, pneumatology volumes out there that are way, way better. But what I found with guys that read the forgotten God 
it wasn't that they were opposed to reading the other guys. It's just didn't know. They just, they weren't taught. They weren't, they weren't either. They, they, they didn't go to seminary or the seminary that they went to didn't highlight these things. And so when I said, okay, great. Like, okay, so forgotten God, that's the forget, that's the forgotten book. Let's just put that book away. Cause it really doesn't say anything here is here's something that you could step into. That's really rich and connects to experience, but also to like church history. And what, what I found was, is that they begin to figure out like, whoa, 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 the, the most articulate, impactful and experiential works on the Holy Spirit are in the Reformed tradition or among these people that are called cessationists, right? Uh, like rich. And they are connected to uh, many uh, of the church fathers and, and historical theology. So what people that have some level, like they're, they're reading, if you just show them like the better stuff, a lot of them are willing to go. They're willing to like, okay, let me try it out. Let me check it out. Yeah. And I want to reiterate again, because this seems to be a flashpoint for some reason. Thomas Aquinas as a person is not the point. The point is the doctrine behind it when it comes to the contested issues of our day. Yeah. And for some reason, the doctrine of God has been an issue for the last 150 years, and now it's an issue in Reformed Baptist circles, which me and you are, are, are part of. It's not Thomas Aquinas. It's the stuff he said. And the reason that we say Thomas Aquinas is important is because everybody else is just echoing him in a lot to a mm. large degree on this topic. Yeah. So when you want to say Thomas Aquinas is bad, can't take anything he says, especially on this area, or natural theology, um, you're actually cutting off the limb with, from which you stand. Mm. So if you claim to be Reformed, and you inhabit the Reformed tradition as the Reformers did when it comes to doctrine of God and natural theology and how we know God, um, they're largely standing on the medieval scholastic approach, which is not just Thomas Aquinas. It's, right. it's consistent with medieval all the medieval thinkers and everybody, so we can get rid of Thomas and say somebody else, Henry of Ghent. If you say, let's get rid of those guys, you're cutting off the branch from which the Reformed dudes were standing on. Yeah. So that, to me, is the issue. It's not Thomas Aquinas per se. He's just a fill-in for the problem that exists and the misunderstanding that exists. And it seems to be an evidence of a lack of reading and knowledge of both the Reformed tradition and sure. people like Aquinas. But there is also a, a communication gap yeah, because it's so polemical that there is a little bit of a I don't want to step out and really examine the issue because now I've staked my claim mm -hmm. and part of my platform is, is based on this, which can be problematic. So it's helpful to step out and get out of those debates a little bit and to just read the sources, engage the sources for what they are, think through them and try to discern what's actually biblical, what's not, uh, what are the reform guys saying? What's Turretin saying? What's John Owen saying? And you'll find out it's consistent with, Aquinas yeah. and the other medievals, Bonaventure, there are serious disagreements. There are serious differences. But by and large, they have a consistent conceptual core that's the same uh, throughout this great tradition. And we should want to say, I want to be in that stream. I want to stay, I want to stand on the shoulders of giants. Yeah, I've I found like a humble curiosity, a humble, hungry curiosity for exploring. The, the truths of God, the truths of scripture, it makes me willing to, to listen and to read. Like I, and, and, and here's the thing from a, from a very practical perspective. Um, 
if, if you're going to, if you're following Jesus, if you're a believer, there are going to be times in your life when you, when your faith is weak, right? When there is more doubt than you ever thought you would have. And it's, it'll happen in different areas of the faith, if not the whole. And one of the, one of the things that has been a, a real help to me is to see the connection to, um, to the historic church or to the people of God throughout the centuries. You know what I mean? A lot of the people that I've talked to that have gone through, um, you know, deconstruction or deconversion or whatever, they're oftentimes responding to one particular articulation of the faith, usually like shallow evangelicalism or hard fundamentalism or whatever it is. Now, sometimes they're responding to reform theology, and, and the, but, but a lot of them are, are really responding to one particular articulation of the faith. And what I've, and, and I'm sympathetic to it, right? Because you get burned, you, you see abuses bad thought and it's the connection to the whole that has really helped me to um to continue to persevere with that humble hungry curiosity without writing off the whole and it's not because like oh it's been around forever it's it's because wow the faith despite the trappings and the way it's kind of exists in maybe my particular circumstances the, the the faith that once for all delivered to the saints right the knowledge of god uh, the excellencies of God that we're supposed to proclaim, those have been studied and articulated from the scripture over these centuries. And as I continue to go back, it really strengthens my faith. Again, it's not that those figures themselves are strengthening my faith, but it's what God, uh, it's what God taught us through them in their exploration of the scriptures that has really been something that, that grounds me again and again when maybe I am struggling with some unbelief or some frustration because of the way things are in my current situation or in our day. Yeah, that's good. And it reminds me of what kept me from deconstructing. I think the Lord's means of using, keeping me from that was to introduce me to these great intellectual giants in the Christian tradition. I'm a little bit more intellectual guy. Uh, the churches I was at through growing up in college were much more like the cool lights video kind of stuff. And I became pretty disillusioned with that. And I think if I hadn't been introduced to the serious side of Christianity, that I wouldn't have preserved in the faith. But I think the yeah. Lord's kindness and faithfulness used that as the means to keep me preserving. Mm. So I think exposure to that is, for me, life-saving. Yeah. No, now, I, I do want to mention, Joe, you tell me what you think about this. I see twin errors in our current moment on this whole classical theism stuff in the reformed evangelical okay. bubble on one end, which we've talked about a lot is just this almost naive rejection of anything that isn't John Calvin or something like that. Sure. But there's also a twin error of calcifying the great tradition to be identical to Thomas Aquinas or something like that. That's not true. If you read the tradition, there is breadth, there is diversity. John of Damascus, all these different people, Bonaventure, they have serious disagreements right. with Aquinas. So it's not just Aquinas, but there is a great tradition, and we shouldn't just gloss over yeah. that. So there is distinctions, but there is similarity. So I want to, for me, avoid both of these things. That's good. So I've seen a tendency in both directions. Mm -hmm. I want to say, let's not fall off the edge on either side. Let's not deify Thomas Aquinas because there is a danger in trying to respond to people who want to reject 
Aquinas and others in a naive fashion that you end up accidentally propping him up on a platform that he shouldn't be on. Right. Right. No, I, I, I totally agree. And I think that we, we find this, that there are, there, there have always been real disagreements among any group, any, even among unified groups, right? Like the, the people that put together the Westminster uh, standards, the people who put together the, the second London confession, they disagreed on a bunch of stuff. Right. And so they were able to articulate the things that they do agree on in ways that they do agree uh, like they could, they could, here's what we agree on on worship, but man, there was a bunch of stuff that they didn't agree on concerning worship. So they left that stuff out. And so it's not strange. It's not, a, it's not strange to go like, oh no, I'm going to pull all the good stuff out of Aquinas and I'm going to leave the rest. Right. And it's like, we've, we've always done that. We've always been able, at least we historically, I think we've, we've seen that this is true. We have a confessional identity that, that unites us, connects us and connects us to the past, but there's always room for, for disagreement. And again, it, it, it just, it keeps me really humble. I don't know. It should keep me humble. I don't know if it does, but it makes me want to stay humble or be humble because I realize, like, wow, these guys that, that really were like the heavy hitters of their day. And I'm certainly not one today, but the, those, those, those people who were, who, who were the heavy hitters, they disagreed. So like if, if they can have these areas where they're not on the same page and areas where they are on the same page, then it should really make me like, it should encourage careful thought and conclusions on my part to say like, okay, so where am I in, in what stream am I standing? Who am I standing with? Is my conscience clear as I hold these things? And we should be able to say like, Hey, listen, I love you. You're a brother. We disagree on this without boiling it down into ad hominem attacks. I mean, listen, there's, there's, a, there's a place for busting chops and being silly and, and being provocative. I'm fine with all of that. But in the end, I, I really want us to be able to say like, listen, not everything is, is, is worthy of casting people into outer darkness, right? We should be able to just disagree uh, and, and I think seek and pursue theological agreement wherever possible. Have the debates, have, have the discussion, have the disagreements. That's good too. But I think that's a, that's a good word. That's a good word. And man. it's important to remember that things like divine simplicity, it's okay to admit, I haven't read a lot on this. This seems incoherent or weird on my face, just reading it like it doesn't seem to cohere with what I see in Scripture. But let me just pause, hit the pause button and read some and think about it. That's okay to say. I do think that there are multiple models and ways to understand divine simplicity in light of the confessional status, but there's just a real lack of understanding of what's even being said in divine mm. simplicity. Uh, the The charges against it are really, like, if you read anything on divine simplicity, you would realize that they engaged that objection on page one. Yeah. So let's just take a chill pill relax, say, hey, this looks weird to me. Let me do some study. I don't know what I think yet. That's an okay response. But there is a reality that the confessional status says that God is without body parts or passions. So you have to be honest with that, and you yeah. have to wrestle with that. And if you ultimately say, I can't affirm this, I want to reject this part of the confession, okay, we can be friends. Right. You just don't affirm the Second London Confession of Faith anymore. Right. That's fine. Let's just be clear where we're at. Yeah, I, I'm. I'm more than. I'm more than happy with that. The one exception I take, it's a partial exception to the Second London Confession. I I hold that exception uh, very cautiously and and honestly, very humbly. In that, like, 
I'm the weirdo here. I'm the guy that's saying, you know, and like Barcellus and Renahan, all those guys, um, they're super kind to me. They bust my chops about it. Like they'll, they'll, they'll tease me about it, uh, but, but never in a, in, a, in a mean way. And it's like, I, I'm uncomfortable holding my position. My conscience is clear. That's why I've got to do it, right? It's my understanding of scripture and the way that we keep the Sabbath. That's really fundamentally is, I believe in the, the fourth commandment, but how you keep it, I'm a little different on. But anyways, uh, I'm, I'm certainly not standing up trying to get everybody to go with me and, and, and reject the confession. I'm saying like, listen, my conscience is here, so this is what I say. And when I teach on it, I generally say like, listen, this is the historic view right here. This is, this is what Baptists, Reformed Baptists, particular Baptists have believed about this. Now, I differ here, and this is why, um, because I really do value, <laughs> I, I really want to maintain a confessional identity. You know, I, I just... I think I think if if we could be a, a if we could work on and by we I mean me if we can work on being friendly in our discussions and debates and disagreements uh, I think we'll get a lot farther than than we're getting right now because there there does seem to be a whole lot of a whole lot of static uh, a whole lot of a whole a whole lot of talking past each other even well yeah it's become about personalities yeah which it shouldn't be. It should be about ideas. So there is a recalibration that's needed mm. in our in our current like little tribal spots. Who cares about the personalities? Let's just talk about the ideas and wrestle with them and deal with them. That's what I'm interested in. I'm interested in understanding the truth. Mm. I'm interested in understanding what the Second London Confession of Faith says and teaches. So let's deal with those things. Yeah. Who cares yeah. about the red herrings? Who cares about the people popping off on Twitter? Just ignore it. Delete Twitter. Stop it. Let's talk about the ideas. That's what matters. That's what's important. And it's going to make us so much sharper. Um, it, it's it's funny. Like I remember, I I've never struggled with uh, embracing the doctrine of unconditional election. Um, I wasn't raised in the church, so I was reading scripture a lot. And um, and my 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 theology as it was being formed by reading scripture, not by my pastors at this point, uh, and not by any books that I was reading. I, I, I saw that God chose some before the foundations of the earth, like just to use the language of scripture. And then, you know, I was challenged on this by some pastors saying like, that's Calvinism. That's not biblical. You shouldn't believe that. I was really concerned because wow, my pastor's telling me that I'm wrong here. And I, I take that very seriously because what do I know? I graduated second to last in high school. I read one book in high school. Like, I don't know. And so, you know, I began to sort of inquire, but my, my, here's my point is that um, I ultimately left that church and went to another church that believed in the doctrines of grace because I, my conscience wouldn't let me let go of those. I never struggled with the doctrine of unconditional election. I did struggle with limited atonement. That The first time somebody articulated that for me, I was like, first John, bro, like, what are you talking about? Propitiation for our sins and for the sins of the whole world. You know, the first time I heard about divine simplicity, I was offended. Not simplicity, I'm sorry, impassibility. I was offended. I'm like, oh, yeah. what the heck? What the heck? How did... Oh, I guess God doesn't love. It's just all of these reactions, which were coming from, I think, a good place, right? But it was it was all I knew uh, led me to respond in a, if I'm being honest, in a superficial way because I hadn't really considered those things. And then over time, yeah. as I read and I read certain people and various perspectives, I had to change my mind. I had to go like, I'm wrong here. So let's, yeah, I'm going to embrace something that is more biblically satisfying than what I was originally or initially holding to. I mean, James 3 tells us we should be open to reason. That is a posture that Christians should have. 
That doesn't mean you are like a jellyfish, mm-hmm. but you should be willing to hear other people's arguments. But it also reminds me like your story and my story in a lot of ways. I mean, I wasn't a Calvinist always. I was, you know, disgusted by it when I first heard about it, thought it was crazy. We should be patient with others where they're at. So someone may think it's a crazy doctrine that God is simple and it's stupid and wild and out there. You probably thought that too at some point. Right. So just, it's okay. Just be cool about it. Say, you know what? That's fine. Let's walk together. Let's read some stuff together. So if you've got somebody, a member in your church who's thinking that, and, oh my gosh, you're unorthodox in some sense, just calm down. It's going to be okay. Walk with them. It may take years. Who knows? Be patient, be loving, and just be willing to read sources with them, engage questions. Yeah. Don't treat questions as if they're attacks or if they're a warning sign that someone's sli- sliding out of orthodoxy or something. Just be genuine and open uh, to their questions and try to answer them as well as you can with a level head. And I think you exemplify that really well, which is something that I've liked. Mm. Well, I don't know. I can be a jerk. But uh, I, th- I think what we, I, I agree, um, God has been so patient with us. He's so patient to teach us. Um, through his word, his spirit, his church, he's patient with us. We, you know, we don't arrive fully formed. Uh, we should have the same, we should be patient with ourselves and we should be patient with others for sure. Because uh, if you're impatient with people, they're never going to arrive. You, they will dismiss you as you are dismissing them. Listen, Jordan, we're going to have to have you back on. Maybe we'll talk about natural theology. Hmm. That could be fun, right? Um, Jordan, if people want to interact with you on social media or on the interwebs, where do they find you? How do they get to the London Lyceum? Uh, all that stuff. Yeah, so I'm mainly on Twitter. That's JL Stefaniak. Uh, I'm on Facebook, but I don't really use it. So every time I get on there, I've got like all these friend requests from people. I'm like, is a Facebook a place you're supposed to accept these or not? I don't remember the the social code. But I don't get on there very often. I don't post stuff on there. So if you add me, even if I added you, you wouldn't see anything. Uh, but you can check out our website, thelondonlyceum.com. There's all sorts of stuff about there, there about me, my CV, if you're academic and interested in that sort of nerdy stuff, or just our podcast and our YouTube things. It's all, it's all there. Nice. Well, we want people to uh, to check you out there. Um, if you guys want to interact with us on social media, you know it's at Doc and Devo. That's Instagram. That's uh, that's Twitter. You find us on Facebook. Uh, you can um, go to our website, DoctrineAndDevotion.com. Uh, there you can see... Uh, you can re- listen to the podcast there, or you can uh, watch some of the videos there. But we're also on YouTube, uh, and we would love for you to subscribe to the podcast through your favorite pod catcher, um, iTunes, or whatever you use. And if you want to support Doctrine and Devotion, if you want to really help us continue to do what we're doing, uh, then you can subscribe to All Access. Uh, All Access will give you five devotions a week, Monday through Friday, reflections on scripture, meditations, and you get an additional podcast called Banter of Truth, where Jimmy and I chop it up in this this week we talked about our our, our testimonies we actually went through the, the what our story was how we came to christ uh so yeah check that out if you'd like to support us and we want to hear your feedback we want to hear you and interact with you on social media so so hop on let us know what you think of jordan and what else you'd like us to cover thanks for listening guys mm-hmm.